So as we think about the ending, you can't help but wonder what JP3 could have been. And was there a simple fix to make the film better? Anthony, what do you think is a simple way to improve JP3, like a very simple fix? Biggest recommendation for the film, and I think this kind of would have saved it, and you wouldn't really have to change all that much. I think the call that Alan makes to Ellie in the film should have happened in the middle of the film. I think maybe, you know, whether he calls Ellie or the military or, you know, whoever. And if they made a phone call in the middle of the movie and then set like a ticking time bomb for like, hey, you need to get to the coast in X amount of time. Otherwise, the, you know, the the neighboring ship is going to leave you and we're just going to assume you're left for dead. Maybe that would have created a little more tension. And, you know, like after they get through the birdcage, they, you know, they, they have to leave Billy behind. They have no choice. They have to keep moving. Otherwise, they're going to be left behind on this island forever. And uh, I think if they did that, and maybe, you know, it probably would have made the ending pay off a little bit more. It wouldn't have feel, it wouldn't feel as rushed. And if they included the Pteranodon battle with the helicopter, I think that just would have been such an incredible scene. So, Tom, what would be a simple way to improve this film? So, th- there's two things I can think of, um, one of which you've kind of got me thinking about, and one of which I think would be cool anyway. And the the first is, obviously, um, we're talking about Lewis Dodgson and how he could be factored back in. And I was kind of... I've been sat thinking about it, and I'm like, how could you make him turn up on Sauna unless you do it as the Lost World novel? And then I was like, well... What if Kirby did have a lot of money behind him? Because what if somebody else was actually backing him to get Grant back on the island? I feel like there could maybe be some, like, interesting story to be told there if maybe it's presented to Grant as this family looking to recover their child. Um, So, like, obviously it's presented as a tour initially, and then he finds out that they want to get Eric back, but what if really this shady company is using this desperate family to actually get something else from the island as well? Um, I think that that could be a really interesting thing to explore and sort of consider, because then you have that sort of multi-faceted... Um, storytelling where you're kind of sat there thinking okay what is the truth is this the truth or is something else going to change um, and that's always a good way of engaging people with a film in retrospect my second idea is probably what they would do now though because obviously we know that Jur- Jurassic World and then Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom um, and Camp Cretaceous have all shown that they're not afraid of doing retrospective storytelling and it, it would be really interesting to see Grant actually uncover what had been going on on Sauna. So so it, it would be really cool to maybe see him stumble across a lab or something that has, like, say, for example, the genome for a Carifosaurus that we know shouldn't have been bred, um, like, left on a table or something, and then maybe have him, like, starting to piece the breadcrumbs together and realising which dinosaurs weren't on InGen's list... Because then you could do something really interesting where maybe the Gene Guard Act is eventually introduced because of what Grant noticed on Sauna. And he could like go back and potentially try and raise it with InGen because he realises that they're still experimenting on these animals. I think that that would be a really interesting thing to look at. 
So I think if he was to stumble upon something like that, he would probably feel as though he had a moral obligation to do something about it. Well, that's one of the biggest sort of things I regret with JP3, is that all of this interesting lore about the additional dinosaurs that appeared on the island was kind of introduced retroactively and wasn't a part of that story. Because I, I think if they had thought a little bit more about why there were dinosaurs and weren't on InGen's list at the time, it could have made for some really compelling plot threads. Before I saw JP3, I had of course read the two Jurassic Park novels, and I was definitely disappointed by The Lost World in that it strayed so far from the story of the book. So when we get a trailer for JP3 and I see Paul Kirby, and he's trying to get Alan Grant on the island, I'm just assuming this guy works for Biosyn. So the question is, why is Paul Kirby actually Paul Kirby? I love the guy, but the writers decided to have a character conceal his identity, kidnap Alan Grant, and take him to an island with dinosaurs to serve as a guide. I'd be shocked if this character wasn't at some point written to be a Biosyn employee. It's basically teed up for them. You could also go another direction. Same opening with Eric parasailing, same Kirby approaching Grant, same story but just wanting to fly overhead. The plane would land, Grant would still be upset, lots of the same. Paul would reveal his son crashed on the island, but the change could come a bit after the halfway point where Alan and Eric meet up at the water truck. There could be conversations about Eric's dad, maybe something doesn't quite add up to Eric, or maybe Eric is just too shocked to hear his dad is there. Him and Grant walking through the woods. Maybe Grant spots Paul Kirby. He tells Eric he sees his dad. Paul spots them and moves in their direction. Eric steps forward looking at Paul, but there's no recognition. Eric tells Grant, that's not my dad. What happens next? Well, that would have been up to the Academy Award-winning writers like Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. But either way, Paul could have just been a Biosyn employee, kidnapping Grant getting him to the island. What JP4 could have been. Jack, what did you want a Jurassic Park 4 to be? So as I said before, I was maybe 10, 11 when Jurassic Park 3 came out. So I was in that prime audience zone for the Jurassic movies. And I was so excited for what was going to come next. Um, I, I guess at the time I knew that Pteranodon thing needed to go to the mainland. We needed either the opening sequence would be like the opening sequence from the John Sells script, which is literally the little leagues like baseball game and you've got kids having uh, families having barbecues while their kids play and then there's trying on swoop in and start killing everyone that should have been how jurassic park 4 opened but i guess i don't know man i guess it was always about the jungle for me i always wanted the islands to return i think i think it was probably always like i we need to go back to new block because we haven't been there it's been one movie then two on sauna so we need another one on new block that would have been my way of thinking um going by like what was coming out of the news at the time. So there was a lot of rumors about Laura Dern returning. Right. And there was news articles where Laura Dern said, oh, Spielberg called me, we're going to do a Jurassic Park 4. So from that point forward, I was like, Ellie Sattler, lead role, Jurassic Park 4. Like that was always what I wanted. And then I remember there were rumors about like Lex Murphy returning. And I was like, Lex Murphy, lead role, perfect. You know, and it, but it was always that because they were, that was like hit 
the nostalgia notes. That was like, we're bringing back Ellie. And I'm like, best character, let's do it. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I think it was probably just like Nublar returning to that, something to do with the mysteries of it, while also the mainland stuff, um, like Tranodon's dealing with that, and perhaps some of the stuff from the novels, like the Costa Rica, um, you know, like the Raptor, and whether it's the Compi or something. I guess stuff like that. It definitely wasn't a new park. And I think, you know, I, I went through my teenage years waiting for Jurassic Park 4, so it changed a lot. Um, and I remember reading that original Joe Blow article that came out and said Jurassic Park 4 is going to be a new park. And I remember, like, my heart sinking, like, because this just wasn't what I wanted. Like, yeah. I wanted to go back to the mysteries of the first one. And I don't know. I know that for a fact it was always new, but I always wanted to return there. From your research, have you come across anything indicating that Joe wanted to make a Jurassic Park he 4? He was prepped for Jurassic Park 4 for quite some time. He was the director for choice for JP4, and he actively talked about Jurassic Park 4, and so did Spielberg. He was like, well, Joe's the director of that one. And then all of a sudden, no Joe Johnson, it's all Colin. And I, it makes you wonder, like, is he bitter for those reasons? Is he, was he not even told? I mean, it's good for Colin because he came on to Jurassic World and was able to get the film delayed a year. And I think in a way you saw that with ILM and companies like that. They were probably a little bit worried or a little, you know, concerned about the performance of, of a fourth Jurassic Park film, which is why, you know, some of the animation in Jurassic World doesn't hold up. But then in Fallen Kingdom, it's really good, you know. Yeah. They, they obviously, I think there was a lot of hesitation um, for various reasons. It's been 14 years, so of course. Shelley, as DP on the film, do you think Joe Johnson was interested in making a fourth film? Yeah, he was, definitely. No, he was definitely into it, into the fourth film quite a bit. Um, and I'm not sure what, what happened. I think they just, I, I, I think what he was guarding against was um, the story ambiguity that happened on the third one. I don't think he wanted to go through that again. So I think he was insisting that they really, they really carve out a story, which I don't think they ever really did to his satisfaction. Um, from what he told me about what he knew about the fourth one, it was very different than the movie that actually got made. The, the fourth one was going to be something else entirely. And and uh, then uh, Jurassic World was like, that was a whole different idea. So they, they dropped the whole version, whatever it was they were telling him, it was was a whole different movie. So uh, something, they shifted gears there. But he was, by the time Jurassic World even became Jurassic World, Joe was pretty much long gone from that. Lee, what are your thoughts on a JP4? Were you heavily discussing the rumors of a jp4 yeah for years that i think that's what mainly kept the community alive for a good how long would it be 14 years between jurassic park 3 and jurassic world is just debating what was going to be in jurassic park 4 um i i mean in the long run we ended up talking about that more than what was going to happen in jurassic park 3 because dan put the page up i want to say in 2000 something like that so maybe a year and a half between when the page went up and people joined the message board and the movie came out and then say another six months of just talking about that but the movie obviously ends with oh dinosaurs are going to the mainland well pteranodons but thematically the implication is that's where the next movie is going so oh, what's going to happen and then 14 years of that after two years of jurassic park three and a lot of 
after that, after the movie came out, the, I would say a good 80% of the people that were on the message board initially just kind of drifted away and they're like, okay, I don't think the movie wasn't good enough for me to participate in this community every day of my life. I'm James Ronan. And I've been part of the Jurassic community now for about five, must be about five years. I joined the Jurassic Park podcast around about 2018. I was writing articles for them. And I also contribute contribute on certain episodes of the podcast, as well as take take part in on the Missing Compies podcast as well, and various other uh, podcast episodes within the fandom. What did you hope to see in a JP4 film? And were you following along with the rumors? I remember a lot about, there, there was just so much, so many rumors and so many fan theories, you know, leak, potentially leaked plot lines and stuff. And, I, you know, I just... That 14, 15 year wait was just, it was difficult as a Jurassic fan. You know, there was so much, you know, so much we didn't know, you know, some of the cast were giving interviews like Sam Neill and, you know, and Laura Dern, they were giving interviews about, oh, where the characters may be and stuff. And, um, you know, what the fact that Steven Spielberg was planning to do another one. And it was really difficult. And I, I always remember, especially the Dilophosaurus JP4 poster, because that was the most exciting poster I'd, I'd sort of seen. And I remember like finding out it was a fake poster and I was kind of devastated because it was just like, it kind of kept me going. I was just like, this, this, this poster looks great. Like, I'm so excited now. Like, it's still off. So it's going to be in the film. And there was just so much around sort of like the potential plot lines as to where it could go. And then obviously we had the various sort of, you know, scripts, like the sales scripts and stuff like that. There was like a couple of versions of that and different, different ones there. Sort of Rick Jaffer and Amanda, I guess Amanda Silver came on yeah. to do another one. Um, and then obviously that kind of merged into the one that we eventually got in Jurassic World and stuff. So there was just so much in that that time zone. But I feel like having that break as well kind of makes me appreciate Jurassic World more now because it's sort of it sort of reestablished the franchise. And I, I get why Jurassic World went the way it did. I mean, the film grossed over a billion at the box office, and I think out of the, the film so far, it's the like within paleontology i think people are quite fond of it from from people that i've talked to um and i think it's just i think it just established it and it got the whole you know the dinosaur thing going again because it kind of stunted it kind of stopped and um, i mean jurassic has been so great for paleontology you know me you know myself you know i was inspired to you know become a paleontologist basically because of jp jp was a big part of my childhood growing up and, you know, for many other paleontologists as well. And it's done so much great stuff for paleontology and will continue to do so. But I do feel like that time was quite difficult as a Jurassic fan. I know myself and other people like Clayton found it really difficult to sort of, sort of just to live in that time where we didn't know if we, the franchise was ever going to continue, let alone anything else. Follow James on Twitter at JurassicJames1. Charles, what did you want in a Jurassic Park 4? I feel like they're finally now, finally, finally doing what they should be doing with the Jurassic Park sequel. The, the the most fun part of the Jurassic Park movies, I feel like, is you know, I mean, the the San Diego sequence in in Lost World is so great. It's like you want to see a dinosaur in a place that makes no sense. You want them, you know, running past a blockbuster video or what? Or like you want them like in a attacking people in a pharmacy or something you just want to see like dinosaurs in places where they don't belong and it's like that that's like i feel like they're finally doing that 
And that's what I feel like people want more than anything. Although people just want dinosaurs in general. These movies do so well. But I feel like that's what I've wanted. Um, and, and I want to see more of that. I mean, I feel like you could do spin-off movies now. Now that they finally have brought them into the world. Where you could just do, like, whatever. A, a, like a, a raptor stuck in an old folks home diehard movie or something. You know, you could do whatever the heck you want. Um, with having a dinosaur, you could just do different scenarios. They could Universal could just make all kinds of different movies like that. Just have a, a, a like an isolated situation. Like a, I mean, I think they have a summer camp Netflix cartoon or whatever. But you could do like a summer camp slasher movie with a dinosaur, <laughs> you know, uh, going after campers uh, in summer camp or whatever. <laughs> like, it just like you could do all the, the the possibilities are limitless when you when you finally get them out of the jungle and get them into city areas urban areas suburban areas that's the fun thing for me to see and so that's what i want to see and uh and and hopefully they'll do more jack was there something that after you saw jp3 like when it ended you were thinking i want this to happen or i expect this to happen by the end of jp3 you see the pteranodons finally leaving the island and you know that different pteranodons from the ones in lost world they were in the aviary the whole time now they've gotten out so they can clearly fly long distances you know, as opposed to the ones that seen at the end of the Lost World, because I guess they didn't try to fly to the mainland. <laughs> but uh, then Jurassic World doesn't address it. And if you watch all the movies in sequence, it's a plot hole. Like for me, it's a plot hole. I know that the answer is, oh, they just, you know, Vic Hoskins went up to Vancouver and right, shot right. them down. But like to me, when you watch them back to back, that's an unanswered question right there. That's what I wanted to see in an actual opening for Jurassic World. I mean, the opportunity was huge. This was that chance to explain what has happened during those 14 years and introduce a new trilogy with an opening, like Kickstarter right away. And there's really nothing. Yeah. Jurassic World, you know, if anybody listening does follow me, they probably know I'm not a big fan, but it has its perks and it has, you know, great elements to it. And I think Colin did a good job. I just think he missed the assignment there. You know, if you watch the first three Jurassic movies, all three have an opening sequence that's an inciting incident. It tells you a little bit about the film, tells you the tone. It tells you about a mystery that's probably going to be unveiled through the movie, or at least it guides you. It tells you something about it. There wasn't that in Jurassic World. The only thing we got was a sort of completely computer-generated shot of an egg that's cracking, and it doesn't really do anything. (laughs) It's like, well, I was assuming there were going to be dinosaurs in this one, so I guess I'm right about that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it doesn't do anything, and that's that's even the open. Yeah, the opening sequence could have been something to do with a roundup or something. So another question is: Are we better off that JP three wasn't as successful? Yeah, that, that's the thing with JP three. It as much as I love it, you love it clearly. That, there's a lot of people that do love JP three yeah. for what it is, and we understand the fault it has, but it's still Jurassic Park. It's a great ninety minute Jurassic movie, but I think. If it, if it had actually been more successful, if it had been more, if it had achieved more, you know, in the same way The Lost World did for me, uh, it would be a very different franchise now. And I think we would have had Jurassic Park 4, and we probably would have had Jurassic Park 5 and Jurassic Park 6. And the franchise would either be in a really good place right now, or it'd be in a really bad place. Like, they would have just continued to decline yeah. and, and end up in a really bad position. So it's hard to say. It really is, but I just... In a way, I'd love to see an alternate timeline where that did happen. Or JP4 happened in 2005, for example. Maybe not the John Sale script, but one of the scripts. 
I mean, you have the John Sayles JP4 script, which is pretty legendary at this point within the Jurassic Park community. I mean, I could probably spend a few episodes simply discussing that unmade script. The script is wild. There are some fun moments, but it's wild. I'll just read a brief description of the script thanks to the website Screen Crush. The hero of the script is an unemployed mercenary named Nick Harris. John Hammond recruits him for a dangerous mission to Isla Nublar, where Harris needs to find the shaving cream can full of dinosaur embryos stolen in the first film by Dennis Nedry. He manages to find the can and evade the island's dinosaurs, but he's attacked by soldiers working for the park's new owners. He stashes the embryos, then gets knocked out and captured. And that's when things get really weird. Nick wakes up in a medieval castle in the Swiss Alps, where he's held hostage by Baron Hermann von Drax. Von Drax wants those embryos, and while he negotiates with Harris, he shows him his prized possessions, a team of highly trained, genetically engineered raptors that can be controlled with hormone injections. Von Drax makes Harris an offer he can't refuse. Use his unique warrior skills to finish training these raptors for combat, and maybe he won't feed them to his pet dinos. Now, you can actually read the full script on JurassicOutpost.com under the download section. So, check it out. Brad, what were you looking forward to in a Jurassic Park 4? Well, you mentioned the John Sales script earlier. I'm, I'm glad we never got that, <laughs> even though we seem to be getting parts taken out. Um, I'll briefly touch on the human raptors. As much as I wouldn't want to see that in a Jurassic film, some sort of uh, horror horror Resident Evil slash Dino Crisis sort of, I'd love to see that concept on film. It'd give me nightmares, but that's probably enough of that. Um, I think the big, the big one, as much as I love Sauna, I think a return to Nublar was where we had to go, especially because unlike the novels where it's specifically stated that no, it's bombed, it's firebombed, um, it's mentioned in the Lost World, people have gone to Nublar and no, no animals have been discovered yet. These, um, these carcasses are still washing up on the Costa Rican beach. Crichton had parts of Jurassic Park uh, where the animals were getting off the main line. It wasn't touched in the in the movie, but I think you could pick that back up. And um, unfortunately, you haven't got Hammond. Um, Bob Peck's not there, but maybe Wu, someone from InGen, uh, could be sort of leading the charge that, hey, our animals are on the mainland somehow and breeding. And, and sort of go from there, bringing the pteranodons, getting to the mainland is a bit of a um, bit of another issue too, just to add to the, the issue of if we've got animals on the mainland somehow. And um, But in saying that, I'd want it to be in Costa Rica and back in the jungle and <laughs> that sort of thing as well. And I don't think they would have done that. Having talked to so many Jurassic fans, since the first episode, it's always interesting to hear about their thoughts on JP3. The following are audio recordings and text emails sent to me, sharing their thoughts, memories of the first time viewing the film, or simply sharing what the film means to them. Hi, this is Rob Welcher. I guess I should start by saying that I am have seen Jurassic Park in theaters numerous times years old. So yeah, I've been a been a fan since uh, since I got my very first uh, Raptor Kenner toy, 
And I, I just, I remember the lead up to Jurassic Park 3. It was just such a wild time. I mean, you know, no Twitter, no Facebook. Uh, like most of you, I just, I got everything from Dan's jp3page.com. I remember the first time I saw Jurassic Park 3, I was in the Boy Scouts, and we were in a summer camp at, in the Black Hills of uh, South Dakota. And when we were on our way home, we stopped in this town for the night, and they happened to have a little two-screen movie theater, one that I'm pretty sure, you know, like the owner lived above. And uh, we got to see Jurassic Park 3, and it was just, it was so incredible. I, I just, you know, to be surrounded by, you know, the Black Hills, where you know, all these dinosaurs are found, uh, to be watching this movie, it was just, it was something, you know, that I'll never forget. I will say that, like most people around that time, I remember being slightly let down. Um, I can't place my finger on it exactly why. I'm sure that if I really thought about it, my issues would be nitpicky at best. And I, uh, it's one of those that has really grown on me throughout the years. Um, the last time I watched it, you know, I, I watched the original trilogy easily once a month. Uh, yeah, the last time I watched it, I just couldn't find really any complaints with it. I mean, yeah, the T-Rex dies, but eh, who cares? So uh, yeah, that's kind of my earliest memories of Jurassic Park 3. And you can find Rob on Twitter at Rob Welcher or on TikTok at JurassicRob1993. Luke Ferris of the Jurassic Pod. Speaking of my memories of JP3, for a lot of millennials, it was kind of the first Jurassic Park film that we remember being in theaters. I'd watched the first two films on VHS at a very young age, but JP3 was the first time I remember seeing the franchise on TV commercials, posters at Burger King, and on theater listings in the newspaper. In a way, the chrome logo of Jurassic Park 3 is just as iconic and powerful to me as the John Williams score, Ian Malcolm, or The Incredible Direction by Steven Spielberg in the first two films. Although I didn't see JP3 in theaters, I remember it always being on TV in later years. It was kind of that perfect Saturday afternoon action-adventure movie to watch while my brother tried to convince my dad not to switch back and forth from golf. I think the most interesting thing about JP3 is how it's held up visually as a blockbuster from the early 2000s. We've gotten a lot of bad blockbuster action schlock in the past 20 years since JP3, but it's really incredible how the film has remained an easy-watching, delightful story that stood the test of time. Thank you, Daniel. Peace and love to the Jurassic Park community and Stuck on Sorna. Cheers. An email from Jeff in Oregon. I grew up in a very small town, on a farm outside of that small town, actually. To see a movie in the theater, it was 45 minutes to the nearest big city, which was still pretty small. I saw all three of the original Jurassic films in the same theater. Each one was a delightful, iconic, and memorable movie-going experience. But something special happened in my viewing of Jurassic Park 3 that I couldn't have predicted and will never forget. Now is where I'll say that I grew up in Oklahoma. In that big city, my family would take me to every time a Jurassic movie came out was none other than... Enid, Oklahoma. On the first name drop, we're in the Westgate Shopping Center, Enid, Oklahoma. The theater didn't quite know how to react. There were some muffled but excited conversations and then chuckles. And then came the big one. You know the one. There's no ambiguity this time. The entire theater stood and erupted. My fuzzy adolescent memory wants to say that there were hugs and tears all around the theater. While that might be hyperbolic, it was certainly very loud and emotional. There was a Westgate Plaza, but to my knowledge, there was no Curry Paint and Tile Plus. 
I don't know why Enid, Oklahoma was chosen. Maybe you'll cover it in the next episode. Though I'm sure it was chosen because of how inconsequential it is to emphasize Mr. Kirby's more humble background. Big things didn't happen in rural Oklahoma, but they did that day. It made me a diehard Jurassic Park 3 defender for life and solidified it as one of my best theater experiences. Consider me stuck on Sorna. All I needed was having one of my favorite film heroes back and running with dinos for the third installment. Sam Neill didn't miss a beat, and Grant's relationship with Billy was always a highlight for me, which you covered perfectly in the podcast. While the split with Ellie stung initially, it also felt honest and grounded the film for me. It made me a more resilient moviegoer by having my expectations challenged in such an unexpected way. The aviary and river sequences are obviously fantastic and remain some of the best sequences in the franchise. The film isn't perfect, but it shouldn't be maligned for not being as perfect as Jurassic Park. Thanks for bringing your love of this film to others. I hope it will elevate the film for some in the community, and I hope this won't be your last Jurassic-related project. Sincerely, Jeff. And unfortunately, I've asked some people involved in the film about the choice of Enid, Oklahoma, and I have yet to get an answer. I did reach out to screenwriter Peter Buckman, and he declined to participate in the podcast. Hi, fellow Jurassic fans. Uh, this is Riddhiman Mukhopadhyay uh, here, or you can just call me Riddhi uh, for short. And uh, I'm from India, from Bengal, uh, uh, basically. Uh, and I've been a huge fan uh, of uh, the Jurassic Park franchise since 1994, not 1993, because the first film released uh, here in 94. And do you remember the first time you saw Jurassic Park 3? It was, uh, I think it was late 2001, I think probably, I think we have Durga Puja here, which is a uh, religious uh, ceremony. It's, it's celebrated in a huge way. And it was, I think, uh, late October. It had already released. I was staying with my maternal grandparents at that time. My parents were living elsewhere. Uh, and uh, I saw the ads on TV like everybody else, and like I kept pestering, you know, uh, you know my, my, my dad basically um, telling him to uh, like, come on, you gotta come here and take me to the movies. I, I gotta see this. And the first thing he told me was, what, those green lizards again? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah anyway, if it, uh, the green lizards, I gotta see them, they, you know, they're back on the big screen. And, uh, well, we, and like, uh, it was a bit difficult getting tickets, um, uh, it was basically houseful and there were uh, like only, a, uh, there were only a few, uh, cinemas in Kolkata, which is, uh, you know, the capital of Bengal, uh, here, capital city of Bengal. And, uh, only a few, uh, cinemas were showing it in the original English, uh, you know, version everywhere else. It was just Hindi. And uh, so, um, like I said, no, I'm not going to watch the Hindi one. I want to watch the original the first time. So, uh, and, and it was, it was Chaplin, the theater, and the name of the theater was Chaplin. It's one of the old, uh, oldest theaters in Asia. And it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. It was just demolished and uh, they built a corporation building, uh, you know, there. But uh, that's where I saw Jurassic Park 3, me uh, and my kid brother. And my dad. 
Tell us about the time leading up to that first viewing of JP3. I, I remember when I first heard of the film, and that was, again, we visited our maternal grandparents. And that time I wasn't staying with them. So it must have been many, many months or probably a year ago. And, uh, um, and everybody was huddled before the TV set. And my grandfather tells me, they're making another Jurassic Park. And there's a pinosaur. I'm quoting him. He said, P-I-N-O-S-A-U-R. <laughs> That's what he heard. <laughs> he misheard, obviously. But I thought, what pinosaur was it? Does it look like a pine tree or something like that? Um, and uh, that was my first like exposure to the idea that a new Jurassic Park film was being made. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, my 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 grandparents, of course, they were quite concerned that, like, again, the dinosaur bug has caught this guy, so he's not going to study. All he's going to do is fawn over these creatures. So I had to basically like wake up in the wee hours of the morning when they were asleep turn the contrast and the brightness of the TV down as much as I could, turn the sound down, and just wait for the TV, TV spots to appear. That's what I did every single day, every single day. That, you know, I, I was so obsessed. What does JP3 mean to you? For me, what, means, uh, what it means is that they tried something different. It was not just, uh, I mean, if you look at JP and JP2, um, uh, some people swear by TLW and they don't want to say anything else. <laughs> but uh, I mean, uh, between the, uh, the first two films, if you, if you, if you study, uh, uh, you don't have to study hard. You, you will see that they're structured very similarly. But JP3, of course, it, it just, it, there are telltale signs of it uh, having different creative minds behind it. It, it was structured differently. You know, they get to the island and immediately all hell breaks loose and all that. It was very kinetic. But what was more important and more exciting for me uh, was, I think, I think which, which I think you know, is the raptors, is the way they were portrayed. There was a radical shift in the treatment of those dromaeosaurids. Like in the first two movies, they were just very grisly, sort of like they were having a bloodlust sort of thing and they had the only thing on their mind was basically to kill. But in Jurassic Park 3, you were both scared and fascinated by them. For the first time, these were not just creatures that, that just wanted to kill you. And I think when I grew a little bit older, what I, what I recognized is GP3 works on a sort of a mirrored, mirrored plot. Uh, and, and both the human parents and the animal parents basically want the same thing, which is the protection of the young. Fundamentally saying that we are all basically the same thing. We are doing the same thing and animals and human beings are not so different. It's just how we create this sense of other and we use that to justify our ignorance and our hatred or our fear uh, of animals. Maybe I'm reading, you know, too deep into things. Maybe these movies aren't really not meant to inspire such deep conversations. I don't know. You know, when you ponder over things, you discover subtleties that you don't get by just watching it, you know, the first time. You can find Redi on Twitter at J-H-N-R-E-E-D. I'm Barrett Baker. My Twitter handle is Bear Kitty. 
Now, I briefly mentioned this in a previous episode. Can you tell us about that first time seeing the film? I'm 33, so I was just old enough to see that movie in theaters, um, like you had told me before, um, for yourself. And uh, my grandfather was in the hospital. He, he loved the series as well. And um, it was coming out. I, I remember distinctly um, going to the hospital, um, my family sneaking my grandfather out, my uncle actually picking him up and carrying him, putting him in the car, making sure he was fine. We went and we saw the movie and then um, came right back. I wouldn't say it was his dying wish, but it was one of the things that he really wanted to do was to go see that movie. It, it sounds weird to some people for that, um, but he, he was a movie buff and he had fell in love with the series. After seeing the film, were you just as interested in the franchise? Okay, so I'll be honest. I actually started like my own fan fiction after this movie, um, which was horrible. It was horrible. But um, it, yeah, this movie started my own fan fiction of, of the whole series. What can you tell us about that? They came out with toys that had crossbred cross dinosaurs. So they had like toys that um, had battle damage on it that you could pull like little pieces out and see their rib cage. And in my mind, I thought it would be really cool if you could crossbreed a Velociraptor with a giant salamander. And so the whole story was Isla, Isla Nublar was dangerously crossbreeding Velociraptors with salamanders. And so the salamander velociraptor thing would crawl on the walls and you know it would still have the sharp claws and it would jump but like i said it's so dumb because at the same time i was watching dragon ball z and so i had a guy that like would put so much gel in his hair that it was spikes and he would ram the dinosaurs with a spiked hair and i'm like this sounds so horrible but you know i'm in like 10th grade so this is awesome to me but <laughs> it was a mess Hey everybody, my name is Zola, and I'm happy to be here talking Jurassic Park. Alright Zola, so when I first saw the film, as you know, I was let down. Do you remember how you felt? I was also disappointed watching the third one. Obviously, it, like you said, you hyped it up so much. I, I did the exact same thing. I was hyping it up so much in my head when I saw it. It just didn't have that same thrill. I don't know, I guess... The story of it was kind of already been played out a little bit too much already because we already know that the dinosaurs are there. They're ready to eat people, ready to attack. Honestly, I by watching it, I over and over again um, recently, it, it, it holds up. Zola, I think I know the answer to this one, but what are your thoughts on that ending? Was it too abrupt? I, I kind of felt the same way, Dan. I felt like they got off a little bit too easy towards the end. And um, somehow the Kirby family all survived. <laughs> and what about Billy? Billy. Um, I really thought that he died. I, I Honestly, I think he should have died. I mean, because there's no way he could have survived all that he went through towards that 
So you mentioned the Kirby's. What are your thoughts on that bunch? With Paul Kirby, he tries to be too funny in the film, but it doesn't work out too much with his one-liners, like when they're going to that um, at the vending machine spot, and he tries to like break the vending machine with his foot. Right there alone, I didn't find that funny. I think that's a great scene. That's funny. I I, I did not find it funny. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was all right. I mean, it got a little bit of a chuckle out of me, but it wasn't like the, the Kirby family. If you take out the Kirby family all together, what I think it might might have been a little bit better. Zola. No offense. No offense to to the you know the cast and crew and you know the directors and writers and stuff like that, but. If, it, if they just took that Kirby family out of the film, <laughs> something else that gets them to the island. Find Zola on Instagram at WTF.Z-O-L-A. Lydia, let's hear what you think about the Kirbys. I was actually watching it the other day, um, and there's a bit when, you know, when they're in the plane and the plane's on the ground and then, like, Amanda runs out and then, like, Paul Kirby like runs after it and then he turns around and sees the spino and then like ducks back in and it's this really like comedic moment um which I've never really noticed where he's suddenly like oh my god and like runs back in and like I think he's a great character like I actually think he's a I think William H Macy plays him really well like it's a strange role for him but also he just totally nails it like you know like the kind of awkwardness and when he's like trying to scrape together money for like the vending machine <laughs> it's just like that's such a good moment um so yeah i i think they're pretty i think they're pretty good characters i find eric a little bit annoying to be honest i don't, I don't really like the whole kind of plucky kid thing but i totally understand why it's in the film because a lot of people do like that but for me i'm often kind of like would prefer it without the child When I think of the future of Jurassic films, I do wonder how JP3 will factor in. It's easy to disregard as it doesn't have a huge impact on the overall story of the franchise, but I hope it isn't forgotten completely. Whether it's a character returning or simply a reference, with Dominion having dinosaurs back in the civilized world, there's a real opportunity for some fun cameos moving forward. Stephen Ray Morris of the See Jurassic Right podcast. How could Paul Kirby factor into these future Jurassic films? If we were to have a cheeky, they're too cheeky um, cameo or sort of throwback uh, nods to the Kirby's. One is you could definitely see Paul being somebody who tries to capitalize on what happened to him and his family in JP three. And so outside of uh, Paul Kirby's paint and tile plus, they have like a blow up, like instead of a wacky inflatable arm flailing tube man, you have a T-Rex and it's like, there's a Pteranodon like stuck through the billboard and it's like, get your tile done, get your bathroom done by the guy who survived the, you know, the Spinosaurus or whatever. Like, and that could be, I could definitely see that being an element of this Alexander Payne film that you, that you talk about. Like that, like the idea of them capitalize, like he's such a huckster that it's like, you could see him capitalizing upon that. Um, and that would just be a great cameo of like just seeing their store or even just the ringtone playing by somebody or something like that. Um, but to me, what would be a, what, what I think would be a more subtle, um, 
like a more subtle reference would be <laughs> my idea is that like Claire is like recruits Ellie and Alan to the cause. And like, she goes to Grant's house and she's, she like, you know, it's like, Oh, may I use your bathroom? And then she comes out of the bathroom. She's like, wow, this is really nice. Did you get it redone recently? And he's like, no, it, it was a while ago, but you know, they did really great work. And it's just like, you just know that like, that's a connection to, you know, if you, you know, um, uh, Willie Mitch Macy, you know, being like, uh, as Paul being like, if you ever need a bathroom, if you ever need a new tile or, you know, it's like, that would just be like such a, like chef's kiss, like subtle nod reference, hilarious. Like I like, can you imagine if we saw that in theaters, like just something like that? Like I would stand up and cheer. Like I would be like, yeah, like that is like, cause to me that shows like such a deep respect and understanding. Like it's not to say that JP three is great or anything, but it's just like to know that like, whoever's making the movies like did their homework like that's the kind of reference that i would be like that just shows somebody who has a deep love you know of this thing now when i began this podcast i had high hopes of talking to all of the main cast unfortunately that didn't pan out but i did talk to one of them and it's someone very special so it wasn't easy but after a few years of reaching out I was finally able to contact one of the most legendary actors in the entire Jurassic franchise. And after a few more emails explaining my podcast, he was more than happy to join me on Zoom for a chat. That's right, you guessed it. The man with the most famous mustache in the entire Jurassic franchise, William H. Macy, also known as the incredible Paul Kirby. Mr. Macy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk Jurassic Park 3 with me today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for talking to me. What can you tell me about the famous mustache? Do you recall whose decision that was? I don't. I didn't have a mustache when I got the call. It was much later that we shot it. My wife a long time ago says, you look really sexy in a mustache. So it takes a lot for me to shave it off. Uh, she's the beginning and the end of my taste when it comes to such things. That's a choice I'd love to revisit, but there you have it. I think the casting of you in a Jurassic film was bold. It's not an obvious decision. I think it's it fits with the film and I love it, but it's a little bit unexpected. Well, they were really brave to um, put Paul Kirby in that, to, you know, sort of a, a bit of a doofus and to put that levity into the film. And I thought it worked really well, too. I loved acting with Taya. She was along for the ride. She's very cool that way. <clears throat> but I, 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 I thought it was a good idea, too. Oh, and, and speaking of Paul Kirby, I do have my Kirby Paint and Tile Plus coffee mug from Jurassic Outpost. Oh, God. <laughs> also, you talk about the casting. It was sort of unusual to put me in that. It's not really in my wheelhouse. But Alessandro also, I thought that was a great acting choice. He's such a magnificent actor and stupidly good looking. And it was really great to act with Sam Neill too. Um, he plays a ukulele, as do I, so we had a lot going on there. Were you a fan of the franchise before signing on to the project? I, like everyone else, was particularly blown away by the first one. Uh, and uh, the thing that got me was that little cartoon. I thought it was the <laughs> most brilliant way to get through a whole lot of exposition 
in such a delightful way. I thought it was just genius. And um, <clears throat> it was so original. And, and uh, I thought Sam was fantastic in it, the look on his face when he saw these things. And Laura was great. Yeah, I thought it was just stupendous. And how did you get involved with the film? Did they, did they reach out to you? Did you audition? No, it was um, at a part in my career that the, the call just came in. And um, I was on the East Coast shooting a film with Laura Dern. And um, I came out of my trailer. I said, I just got an offer to do Jurassic Park 3. And she, in no uncertain terms, said, you've got to do it. Go call them up and say you'll do it. And um, I didn't have many reservations about doing it. I really wanted to do it. Um, but Laura was the one that said, get in the trailer, call him up and say yes. And I think she knew Joe. But um, I'm so glad she did it because it was, it was, I've described it as one of the best and most significant things I've ever done in this business. And were you given a script? Uh, I was given a script. I did recall that it was very different. It was um, episode one with new, new characters in it. It was the same plot. And um, Joe uh, invited all of us in, really. We sat down. Uh, I think we had a week of prep or something like that, <clears throat> at least that I was involved in. And um, uh, we talked about it a lot. And I actually uh wrote a couple of scenes that i was in um and submitted them and some of them got used and um most of them didn't but maybe pieces of them and uh we were all putting it together i know you have that quote in there where i said uh we started a hundred million dollar production with no script and no one got fired that was back when i was more impetuous and didn't think about what I said, but it's true. It's true. And um, I, I think um, I understand a lot about why that has to happen because the some of the special effects were a year in the making. So uh, they were in a bind. I don't think it's a good way to make a movie. Uh, call me crazy, but I, I think it's an important step to have a good script that everyone likes before you start shooting. Okay, so when was the last time you watched the film? And how do you think it's aged over the, the last 20 years? The last time, last time I saw it uh, was I uh, stumbled upon it, uh, flipping channels. <clears throat> and I got there about halfway through and I watched the end of it and I thought it was really good. I was, there was, that often happens with an actor when you first finish the thing, you think it sucks hippo dick. And, but you let a, a year or two go by and then you forgot all about the shooting and you forgot about the disappointments and you see it and you go, I wasn't bad. That's a good movie. It was a profound experience, especially for me at that age, because it was the best and the brightest doing the best they had ever done. We were stretching the bounds of creativity and technology to the breaking point. And it was astounding to be a part of that to see what they were doing and uh, as you said earlier it was such an amalgamation of high high tech and off-the-shelf gags in the airplane in that fuselage um they had built the thing and it was rugged because they needed to 
use it for a long time, but the old spiny is rolling it over. And it was as simple as this. We sat in the fuselage of the plane and Sam would say, and it's, it's going to roll, do a 360. And Sam would say, I'm going to go there, then I'm going to go there, and then I'll go there. And Taya would say, okay, if you go there, I'm going to go there. And we would just, as it rolled, we would figure out where we were going to go. And we did it over and over and over again. And nobody ever got hurt. I mean, everybody got a little bruised up and stuff like that. Oh, my God, I just remembered this, too. We're all banged up at that point in the film. And Taya would go home without taking her makeup off. And apparently she drives like a maniac and she lived in Malibu. So almost every night she'd get pulled over. So she wouldn't take any of her makeup off and the cop would go dick, dick, dick on the glass and go, man, do you know how fast, it oh my God, are you all right? And she would go, yes, officer, beautiful, sexy Taylor I'm shooting Jurassic Park three. Was I going too fast? And she never got a fucking ticket. Of course, <laughs> that's great. If I'd tried that, they would have said, yeah, well, you're going right to jail for impersonating an actor. <laughs> Did you have any idea it'd be such a physical film? A great question. I guess somewhere in my body, I assumed it. I mean, I read the script. Um, they had magnificent stunt people doing the heavy lifting, but um, I've been around the block enough to know that when you're doing that sort of stuff, you do get banged up. I mean, it just comes with the territory, especially when, when they're shooting and uh, the moments with you, you just throw yourself around. Oh my God. I remember one day they said, okay, uh, the Raptors just got through the fence. You're going to run across this field. And they showed us all where we would jump. And for some reason I decided, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go a little bit to the left. I'm going to jump over that bush. That'll be spectacular. So at a full run, as fast as I could go, I jumped over the bush, not knowing that the trees, of course, were all from a nursery. And this tree happened to be in a 20 gallon wooden crate, a 24 inch wooden crate. So right behind the bush that I jumped over was this thing. And I hit it so hard that everybody came out saying, what was that sound? Are you okay? And I lied and I said, yeah, I'm okay. Cause I'm so embarrassed. I didn't go where they told me to go. And when I went to my dressing room, <laughs> I had a tattoo of that crate. You could see the knot in the woods on my stomach. You could see the knot in the woods. You could see the strap on my legs. Oh man, didn't break anything, but Lord, I was. And that very, I, I, so I'm walking around lying about, yeah, nothing. I'm fine. When they wrapped us, it was two o'clock in the afternoon. I said, that's a wrap. What's going on? And Joe Johnson said, it's Halloween. I said, yeah. And he said, well, we got to go trick-or-treating with our kids. And I thought, I love big budget movies. Because a small budget movie, you, you can't, you break your leg, you got to finish the scene. <laughs> you know? But one of the things that was cool, wicked cool about number three, was that it was long enough ago that the CGI prowess was uh, nothing like it is today. So it was complicated. Uh, they would shoot a plate shot of the whole thing. There were a couple of things where they'd go put those little things so they could get shadow and all of that. It was very, very complicated. There was um, 
a whole crew that would come in and shoot it so that the computer could read what was there and add to it. But there, it wasn't all CGI. And um, the big guy. The Spinosaurus. The Spinosaurus, yeah. Uh, that was uh, an excavator. That was a John Deere excavator we were acting with. And they had put, they had this, the butt where the bucket is, they had put the head of the thing and uh, it could do all of this stuff, but it was moving in real time. And the, um, the velociraptors, they had, uh, if memory serves, there were four of them. There was one that was just the face that was one about here. There was one above the legs. And um, they were puppets, basically. It took, if memory serves, it took six people to run one of those things. And they had one guy with a helmet on. So when he looked this way and that, the, uh, the raptor would do that. They had uh, little motors in the iris of the eyes so that they were going. They had a pump so that this point right here, you know, where you see his heartbeat, they had that. They did that gag where it came up and it smelled Taglioni and then snorted and it blew its hair. They put a little, so it was in, it was in real time. We weren't just staring at a blue wall and all the scary shit was put in later. It, they, it was amazing. And we were back from Hawaii and I took my daughter, who's probably three, she, I was carrying her, so she wasn't that old. And I said, do you want to see these raptors? And we went into an empty soundstage where they were rehearsing. And um, like I said, one guy's got the helmet on, one person's on a computer, two people had joysticks that they're doing this. There was all kinds of stuff. And they were standing over there with all these wires from the raptor. And I went up with Sophia and I said, what do you think of him? And this raptor went forward and looked at her around like that, went back. And that's when my daughter said, okay, enough, <laughs> get me out of here. Your character's big moment comes during the Spinosaurus river attack. Paul Kirby climbs the crane to distract the Spino and save your family. It's a scene that visually still holds up incredibly well, in my opinion. Do you have any thoughts or memories on that scene, like from filming it? It was three o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were at Universal. They've got that big pond, which they had flooded. And um, uh, I was over, uh, there's a, in the middle of it, there's a square that goes to about 10 or 12 feet deep. The rest of it is about knee deep. It's to save water and to make it look bigger. And um, I was up on this crane and for safety reasons, they put a harness on me and bolted me to the crane. The gag was I was supposed to, I'm holding onto the crane. I go, hey, pick on someone your own size. And he rattles the crane and I'm supposed to fall off and I'm hanging thusly. And it occurred to me at four o'clock in the morning after a long day of shooting <clears throat> that if that crane went down, I was going with it because I was bolted to it. And I thought it's dark and it's deep and it's cold and I'm never going to get loose from this thing. So I called down to Joe and everyone else. I said, if this crane goes down, I'm fucked because I'm bolted to it and I can't get it undone. And they talk, I saw them talking. This is a long way. You know, I'm up, I'm up 40 feet in the air and I see him talking to the and 
And then Joe got on the megaphone and he said, don't worry about it. We have a wrench and the diver will have it with him. That's great. <laughs> I was not appeased. But um, uh, and then Joe got mad because uh, it 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 jiggled too violently and I fell off the thing. But I was on the harness and um, uh, Joe was a great director, man, a great leader he knew when to cut it when it wasn't worth it and he knew when to persevere i don't know where he learned all of that but he was we always felt really confident in his hands he had our backs i remember it was cold and um we had to do all this water work and i guess it was joe i don't know who did it but they put in a giant hot tub right out of our trailers so we would come out of our trailers and get in this hot tub with all our clothes on until we couldn't stand it and then go get in the tank where we we're splashing around in the water, which was 50 degrees. And it was a piece of cake. And as soon as we finished the take back in the hot tub and it was just so pleasant, so easy to do. I think we can thank Joe for that. And do you have a favorite Paul Kirby moment? When we're walking through the, through the forest being tracked by velociraptors. That's one thing I learned from Jurassic Park. Do not fuck with a velociraptor. But we're walking through there and Paul Kirby says, I'm sorry, I don't have your money. I'm sorry I lied to you. But if you ever remodel your your house or your kitchen, I've got you. I've got the tile. I've got the f- floor coverings. I've got wallpaper. You call me up. I'll treat you well. <laughs> That's a good thing to put in a dinosaur movie. I thought that was good. Would you consider playing Paul Kirby again? Let me think. Yeah. Yeah. In a New York minute. I mean, I'm on board. I would love a Paul Kirby standalone film. Okay. Don't tell me. (laughs) Tell everybody else. (laughs) So as we wrap up this podcast, how do we look back on Jurassic Park 3? Lee, what does it mean to look back upon a time 20 years ago and all of your combined interactions with the Dan's JP3 community? Someone showed me this Reddit post where people were talking about Jurassic Park and Dan's JP3 page came up and like, people know about our message board, but then everyone in the Reddit thread was talking about it and people mentioned me and they're like, yep, I remember reading what Ostromite had to say about all this stuff I never posted. And I'm like, people I didn't know that weren't talking to me were reading things I was saying and remember my username 15 years later. This is shocking to me. You know, being a part of Dan's JP3 page, how has that impacted your life, if at all? Well, <laughs> I mentioned I was going to be on this. Um, the guy who told me about your podcast and he said I have no idea what he would interview you about we were the biggest Jurassic Park 3 community and I can't think of anything notable or or any accomplishments that any of us have done related to it we're just an ordinary internet community and a pretty small one but I thought about it and of the dozen or so people that are still active on there I became a film critic one of the guys makes dinosaur toys for a job one of them is a screenwriter and another guy works at NBC Universal, which makes Jurassic Park, obviously. And he helps recruit people for production and post-production on movies. And it's out of a dozen people, none of those things is necessarily impressive on its own, but it's, I think it would be unfair to say that it doesn't, that it didn't have any impact on us or affect anything. 
How do you think people should view the film all these years later? Rewatching it, it reminded me, the tone is different, but it reminds me of Anaconda, where it's like, it's like, this is a cool, it's the way I said it to these guys when I rewatched it, because they many of them won't even watch it. I haven't seen it in many years, but I was like, this movie's stupid, but it doesn't think I'm stupid. The Jurassic World movies treat me like I'm stupid for watching them. Jurassic Park 3 is stupid because it's it's a movie. It's like it's movie stupid. And they don't really make movies that innocent anymore. It like that's why it reminded me of Anaconda, where it's like they somehow got all these major actors like John Voigt and Jennifer Lopez and stuff into this silly snake monster movie. I mean, there's a lot of dumb parts in the movie, but it's still cool. And that's what Jurassic Park 3 reminds me of. I think it holds up because it's the same movie that it was then. It aged pretty well as just like this simple adventure movie about dinosaurs. If it were a Jurassic Park knockoff and it was just called, I don't know, like Raptor Island or something, and it hadn't been called Jurassic Park 3, I think people would like it a lot more than they did. I think it has a kind of an unfair reputation. JP3 as a whole feels way more Jurassic than anything that has come in recent years. So I think as a sequel, it, it, it fits into the Jurassic lore. It, Joe Johnson managed to make it feel like an Amblin movie. So it has that kind of wisdom, the childhood feel, you know, the adventure, the family movie thing. It's got all that. But I think overall it just, I don't know, it's hard. I guess it just understands it. It just is a Jurassic Park movie. It's exciting. It does all, it checks all the boxes. And I guess the best argument is if you want to watch Jurassic, if you want a dose of Jurassic Park, it's JP3. It's like 90 minutes of perfection. You know, that's that's kind of how I look back on it. Um, and plus, the aviary sequence, you can't, it's one of the best sequences in the whole franchise. And you can, Pteranodons getting their spotlight, like, you can't beat that. There's definitely films that I, I really love that are flawed. I mean, I think that everyone sort of has that, right? I mean, um, and that's not to say that, you know, Jurassic Park 3 is or isn't. I just mean just in general as to the fact that, you know, a film can be flawed, but it affects you in a certain way that you're willing to look past it. Or, or maybe it's the message that you really love. Or maybe there's something nostalgic about it where you remember it as a kid. These films are like my children, and I love them all basically equally. If if Jurassic Park is at 100 in the and it's number one in the ranking, then and Jurassic Park 3 is at, like, I don't know, 98 for me like i i still really like it it just not just not nearly as much as the others but because i love the franchise so much i i have learned to like see its value because it it definitely has so much value in so many ways watching these new films and then going back and i i do think that these new films make that one a better film because for years, I, I did hold a grudge on Jurassic Park 3 and, and just saying, like, well, I love the first two so much. The second one, even to the point where I, I, I'm confused internally whether I like that one more than Jurassic Park. You know, I'm like, do I like The Lost World more? But then Jurassic Park 3 just, just hurt me so much. So for years, I kind of held, like, a grudge about it. But I think with Jurassic World and Fallen Kingdom and the introduction of hybrids and these these test tube dinosaurs essentially and all this like experimentation and labs and stuff it kind of harkens back to Jurassic Park 3 and and even stuff we're seeing now with Camp Cretaceous it really feels like it connects to all of those dots from Jurassic Park 3 that you were wondering about back then and and I do love that it makes it kind of does make that film better for me 
with all of the problems this movie had and you, the clear the clear difficulties they had i think it's just kind of worth saying that the final product is pretty damn good for what they had to work with movies can be so much more than just one thing the, the lost world is kind of more or less one thing throughout and that doesn't make it a bad movie but Jurassic Park 3, I think, is a little bit more complex because of its humor, because of its action, because of the family element, because, hey, what Jurassic Park movie can't have a divorce subplot? And it's a movie that really benefits on repeated viewings because there are, there is a mystery that you kind of solve as the movie goes. And I don't think that any of the other Jurassic films have that. As we spoke earlier, it's one of the, at least from filming point of view, it's one of the more innocent ones it was a little more homemade. It was a little more in real time. But you know what? Nobody knows that. The audience doesn't know if it's CGI or whether if it's a it's a, <clears throat> a John Deere excavator. They just, they're wrapped up in it and they've gotten so good at it. I hope it fits into the canon and I hope there are many more of them. Because um, boy, it turned a whole generation into paleontologists. Uh, it just sparked everyone's imagination. Everybody of all ages can watch it. It makes it timeless. It's not extremely dated, put an asterisk by that because of the CGI. And I, again, it's that beautiful blend of campy horror that makes it timeless and makes it, you know, something that's going to be treasured probably for the rest of cinematic history. That's a very bold statement. Oh, I only make bold statements. <laughs> And this is where I leave you. Flawed or not, most Jurassic fans have a real emotional connection to these films. And in the case of JP3, the time when it was released, being young, anticipating a new film, the conversations, the rumors, it's why I love movies. Even though the film didn't live up to that extreme level of excitement I had back in July of 2001, I've come to appreciate the film. And overall, I do feel this third film turned out extremely well considering the challenges going on behind the scenes. In total, I do hope you've gained some knowledge or simply an appreciation for the cast and the crew that did strive to bring some dino entertainment into our lives. For me, I look at the film as an example of trying to do something different. Not letting the T-Rex be the hero, changing the logo, adding in a mustached Paul Kirby, having Grant hate engine dinosaurs, and yes, separating Ellie and Ellen. It's bold, it's daring, it's different. It's Jurassic Park 3. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at StuckOnSorna.